0: Change is happening all around us. At Accenture, we're helping businesses focus on not only what's in front of them, but what's all around them. Because when you see value in every direction, you create value in every direction. That's 360-degree value. Accenture. Let there be change.
1: Hi there from the Financial Times. This is Mark Filipino. Today is Monday, July 5th, and normally this feed brings you the FT News Briefing but we're taking today off on the back of the Independence Day weekend. Instead, we're bringing you the FT's Tectonic podcast. Now, if you're a regular news briefing listener, then you probably heard me talking about artificial intelligence with the FT's innovation editor, John Thornhill, recently. He gave a preview of episode one of the new season of Tectonic. It's our audio deep dive into the promises and the perils of artificial intelligence. Now we're bringing you episode two. Over the course of the show, John and other FT journalists explore the philosophical, ethical, and technical cruxes of AI's expanding role in medical research, modern warfare, and investments. The series will take you through Google DeepMind's turbo-powered scientific discoveries to a hospital in rural India... To the people heading up the campaign to prevent human biases from being encoded into ai systems this episode dropped this morning on tectonic and if you like it make sure to follow ft tectonic wherever you get your podcasts you can find a link in the bio the rest of the season will be coming out this summer so without further ado here's tectonic episode two trust me i'm a robot
0: in a data-driven world there are many things we measure Steps, keyboard strokes, credit scores. But some things remain subjective and mysterious, different for everyone. One of those things is pain. To measure pain, we rely on people telling us how they feel, and sometimes on science, which can seem a bit old fashioned. For instance, an early study of painful knees and joints was based on research into a particular group of people. The ground where the gleam of sunshine never can be found. British coal miners, who in addition to having a rich tradition of folk music, tended to have a long list of health problems too. In 1952, the British Journal of Industrial Medicine published a study which looked at arthritis in coal miners versus other workers and assessed the increased number of cases and levels of pain in the men who worked underground. There's a problem with studies like this.
2: So this was a um, 100% white, 100% male population. Um, But all of our grading systems and knowledge about arthritis that we use in in medical practice today come from those studies from this very specific time and place and population.
0: Ziad Obermeyer is a professor at the School of Public Health at Berkeley. And he's been trying to solve a puzzle about pain. The starting point
2: for this research was a puzzle in the medical literature. And that puzzle is that when you look at um, almost any study of pain... Um, you find that non-white patients um, in the U.S., but also outside the U.S., um, tend to report much higher levels of pain. And that's true on average, so if you just take two patients. But more mysteriously, it's also true if you look at patients with the same um, degree of, for example, arthritis in their knee.
0: To find a solution, Obermeyer would enlist AI-powered technology and train a system that listened to the patients rather than the doctors. Flipping the process, he found new ways of understanding why some knees would hurt so much more than others. The AI could counter the bias. You're listening to Tectonic. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times and your host for the series. This season, we're exploring the uses of artificial intelligence and how it is deployed in the real world. Today, stories of how AI is helping combat illness when human understanding draws a blank and where there isn't a human to help at all, can AI replace doctors? Should it?
3: So I first got to know Ziad when I was trying to understand a bit more about how bias manifests in healthcare.
0: The FT's European technology correspondent, Madhumita Merger has been reporting for this episode.
3: He's really interesting because he um, trained as a physician.
2: So I spent a lot of time practicing emergency medicine.
3: But he also is a researcher um, in artificial intelligence.
2: When you're practicing medicine, you unfortunately make a lot of mistakes.
3: Who's very soft-spoken, but also quite blunt, particularly about the limitations that human thinking sometimes comes up against.
2: You're working for about uh, 10 to 12 hours at a time. Mm -hmm. And so you see about uh, 20 to 30, sometimes up to 40 patients in that span of time. And you are just constantly making decisions. And you're making decisions like Does this person have a heart attack? Should I do this test? What is going to happen to this patient if I send them home? And all of those questions are the kinds of questions that we struggle with as humans because they're, they're hard questions. They require processing an enormous amount of data. And those are the kinds of things where I think algorithms have a huge potential to help.
3: He is a really strong believer in the idea that um, humans, even physicians, aren't perfect and they could use a little help from thinking machines.
0: How did he come to start looking at arthritis?
3: I believe that he was really interested in the perception of pain. This is a long-standing medical problem where different races, so African-American patients versus white patients, they express different levels of pain for what seems like the same um condition. Um, So he was interested in kind of uh, finding why that difference existed and whether it was more than just a psychological thing.
2: The experiment here is take two patients, one black and one white, whose knees look exactly the same to the radiologist, um, so same degree of arthritis. Black patients on average will report more pain from knees that look the same. And the way most people think about this is, well, you know, if the problem is not In the knee, then maybe it's somewhere else and and maybe it's in patients' heads. And and I don't at all mean this in a pejorative way. There's a lot of really good research that shows that, for example, the same um, painful stimulus will be reported as more painful um, by someone who is under a lot of stress or someone who's depressed. And there are are lots of other reasons that non-white or poor patients might have more going on in their lives and, and be less able to cope with pain.
3: So the experiment that they were doing um, was taking two patients, one black and one white, whose knees to a radiologist looked very similar. And uh, on average, the black patient would report more pain, even though it looked like the same degree of arthritis. A big part of this field of studies based off of a small uh, sample of studies, um, which mainly included white male patients. Um, Ziad felt that there could be a difference in the way that arthritis manifests um, in a black knee versus a white one, and that that wasn't reflected really in the in the current literature about arthritis. When we train AI systems, we use data sets um, that reflect the reality, but obviously those data sets themselves are limited uh, because they don't show us everything, they just show us that narrow slice of reality.
2: The way we usually train medical algorithms is we train it to tell us what a radiologist would say about the knee, because that's how we understand um, how an algorithm can help us. The algorithm can process this x-ray and try to find subtle signals, but Paradoxically, the only way we have to train that algorithm um, to read the x-ray is by having the
0: algorithm learn from a doctor. So the idea now is to train an AI system on a different measuring
3: system. Exactly. So Ziad and his team thought, why not train the algorithm with patient-reported data instead?
2: And instead of predicting what the doctor was going to say about the knee in terms of how severe the arthritis looked, we had the algorithm predict how severe the patient's pain was coming from that knee.
3: And they were lucky because this data set did exist. And uh, they managed to procure it from the CDC and it was actually really valuable and kind of holistic data set that reported different levels of what patients were saying about their pain. So they used that then to tell the algorithm what it was looking for and found unexpectedly that, that it was able to find different or prove that there were different levels of pain for black patients versus white.
0: So this has led to better treatment for a lot of patients, has it?
3: Well exactly and what it kind of disproved was something that had been thought in the medical community for a long time which is that pain was just a perception so the or rather the difference in the feeling of pain was just a perception maybe often caused by non-medical factors and what it showed was that there are some biological differences. It's just that we don't know what they are or radiologists don't yet know what they are. Um, So the hope is that taking that forward, human radiologists can then be more sensitive when those differences come up.
0: This is a really intriguing story, isn't it? Because we hear a lot about how we are encoding human bias into tech. And in this case, it's the other way around. We're using tech to kind of counter human bias.
3: You know, there's no doubt that there are issues with bias in medical AI and all different types. It all depends on what data we're using and how representative that data is of the population that we're trying to help or serve. But humans are also biased, and we know this already. This is why we use AI. We are trying to solve that problem, um, whether that's in criminal justice or in medicine. There, Historically, we know that humans come at it with their own set of preconceived notions. Um, for example, Obermeyer actually worked on another study where he was assessing a system that was used to help patients with chronic conditions who were at risk of deteriorating to get some extra help.
2: Um, If you looked at people who had the same algorithm score, the black patients went on to be far less healthy and far more in need of help um, than the white patients who had the same score.
3: And the reason for that was actually because of how the algorithm had been designed. So the way it worked was giving people scores. So how high was their risk of deteriorating? But what it used to calculate that was the past costs that that person had had.
2: They had trained the algorithm to predict as a proxy for who was going to get sick, who was going to cost the healthcare system a lot of money, and that seems reasonable because when people get sick, they generally generate healthcare costs
3: so the reason this cost variable turned out to be problematic was that uh, was historic bias and and that connects back because it's, it that was actually. That comes from human bias.
2: The problem is that not everyone generates the same healthcare care costs. And if you lack access to the healthcare system, if you can't get the day off of work to go in to get a test, um, if you're discriminated against by doctors when you do go in, you're going to end up not getting the care that you need. And so your costs are going to be lower, even though your needs are the same. And that was the root of the bias that we found.
0: So AI in medicine can be used to circumvent bias. But if we're not careful... It can also reinforce bias, no?
3: Right. So if you train AI, it can actually help us to see our blind spots. I don't think it's actually realistic that we ever will be free of our biases, um, but being aware means that we can use AI to sort of design for that. Um, the algorithm we discussed, which was about giving chronic patients extra care, Ziad uh, audited this algorithm. It wasn't his; it's made by an external company, and it affects up to two hundred million patients in the U.S. every year. So it's you know it's a it's a massive impact. And when he reported back to them the results of his audit, um, they hadn't realized it, and so they replaced it and with his help worked To use variables that better reflect the needs of both communities and also acknowledge those differences.
2: And I think that stepping back, that's largely a good thing. We want the healthcare system to be more proactive in getting healthcare to people who need it. Those people who need it are largely um, poorer and non-white and less educated and and less socioeconomically privileged. And so getting help to those people who are struggling with illnesses is a really good thing um, for algorithms to be helping us with.
3: So it, it should have a very immediate positive uh, consequence for these populations.
0: The kind of systems Obermeyer is talking about don't so much raise the prospect that AI might replace doctors, more perhaps that AI can help them avoid their blind spots and crunch data to allow them to predict outcomes more accurately. Artificial intelligence is assisting doctors, not replacing them. But in some places where resources are even sparser, Help is even further away. AI is more or less doing the work of a doctor.
3: Dr. Ashita Singh works in a small hospital in in rural India. The
4: place where we are actually located is uh, is a village called Chinchpada. And Chinchpada is in this district called Nandurbar, which is uh, in the northwest part of uh, Maharashtra.
3: It's a hospital that people often travel several hours to visit and usually only when they're extremely ill.
4: 70% of the people in this district live
3: below the poverty line. It is underdeveloped in many ways. Her hospital is a low-cost private hospital. It's actually funded by a Christian charity. Um, And this means that it's a little bit better resourced than the government hospitals or the the little sort of healthcare centres
4: so we have 50 beds. Whatever the patient comes with through the door, we try to do what we can to help them.
3: The team at the hospital is is very small.
4: The other consultant is my husband, who is a paediatric surgeon.
3: Who also manages the hospital.
0: And how has AI tech helped Dr Singh?
3: So... You know, she has an overwhelming burden of cases coming to her. I mean, if you think about it, there's sort of three or four doctors um, who are trying to help half a million people. So she's really working with the minimal resources and really just trying to save lives. But uh, last year, her hospital acquired a new piece of artificial intelligence technology. It was an app called QXR. Um, It's made by an Indian AI company called Cure.ai and is subsidized by the government. Now, Cure has trained its system on 3.7 million x-rays of people with tuberculosis, which it's collected from various hospitals around the country. Um, And it's trained this um, algorithm, this AI program, that's able to essentially perform the role of a radiologist. So you feed it the chest x-ray, and then it reads it and tells you how likely that patient is to have tuberculosis.
4: So it was really quite interesting technological advancement, thinking of how could could, uh, um, um, a machine Or how could uh, artificial intelligence actually read a pattern and make a diagnosis for a very specific disease?
3: Um, And the great thing about it is it's able to see signs of that possibly earlier than than a human radiologist might catch it. Um, So almost, you know, it's, it's functioning at the levels of the very best and most highly trained radiologists anywhere in the country.
0: And was this useful during the whole COVID pandemic?
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, this this has been a huge problem for India, particularly this this year. Um, and although they had started working on um, two specific diseases, which was tuberculosis from chest X-rays and also looking at stroke was one of the other things. During the pandemic, they started to realize that the tool could be kind of tweaked to tell the difference uh, between TB and COVID-19, for example. Um, so it was able to look at an X-ray um in Dr. Sheetha Singh's hospital, for example, and kind of make it less ambiguous for her and help her to make a decision about whether this patient has COVID or TB or both and what needed to be treated first.
0: We've been talking a lot about how AI might replace doctors. Do you think that's true in rural India?
3: I think that the... the landscape there is so different and from my conversations with uh, dr Singh she actually sees the help of AIS as a blessing in many ways you know it's not that she feels it does a better job than her and I don't think it replaces um, those those doctors that are there and um, even though there's only you know a handful of them um, medicine is so much more than just diagnosing and handing out treatments and especially in places like rural India where there's a mistrust from patients and they have to be convinced um, having people that there who build that trust is really important for the community to receive that care. But from her point of view, it's so hard for her to bring in more doctors to that hospital, more human doctors.
4: For me, um, you know, over 20 years of working in uh, rural India, I feel that it is so much easier to get technology to work for you than human beings. I mean, that's a bit sad. But it is the truth. It would be very hard for us to dream of a time where there would be enough people willing, enough people who are qualified, enough people who have what it takes to bring good health care to the rural areas of our country, that those people would move here or those people would live here. For that to happen, I think it's like it's it's like a dream that's, that seems unrealizable. But on the other hand, to think of a technology like artificial intelligence, like CURE, being able to be made accessible, available to a place like this is much more doable. It can actually be done pretty easily and pretty quickly.
0: I had one description of AI is it's like having an unlimited pool of research assistance, and I mean that's the sense of this in a way isn't it? That it's enabling doctors to diagnose problems a lot quicker than they otherwise could have done and to scale the kind of medical treatment on in a way that they would never otherwise have been able to do.
3: Exactly. And it just means it gives her this bit of extra comfort um, because, in, you know, in certain cases where she, she might uh, second guess herself or have to wait um, for double confirmation from the, the lab, you know, she doesn't necessarily need to do that anymore. And with TB, it's a curable disease. So it genuinely could save lives. Dr. Singh recently had a patient.
4: Her name was Parvati. She had come after having been admitted at two or three different uh, smaller clinics.
3: She had come from hours away. She'd been brought in um, by an uncle.
4: And she had come with this festering wound on her chest wall, which had been there for months. And when she came, came, when she came to us, she was very, you know, very, very debilitated and frail. She was just Skin
3: and bone. She was just skin and bone. You know, extremely underweight, malnourished, couldn't move. And one of the options for the doctors was to investigate tuberculosis because they do see lots of different ways in which tuberculosis manifests. Um, but in her case, it wasn't necessarily in her lungs. So that she, so Dr. Singh wasn't exactly sure, um, you know, where there was tuberculosis and whether she should be started on treatment for that.
4: It would take us a while, you know. We did sputum tests which would have to be sent to the district hospital and the report would only be, be available about a week or 10 days later. There wasn't
3: much time because the child was kind of um, extremely sick. Um, so that's when that, those are the sorts of situations where um, the app could be really useful. And she did decide to test the app out in this scenario with, with Bharvati, who was 14.
4: With the confidence of the cure assessment that this is tuberculosis we started her on treatment for tuberculosis right from day one. I think that without the cure technology, we would probably still have sort of tentatively made that diagnosis because tuberculosis was the most likely reason for her chronic uh, wound. But just having the confidence of that technology telling us that that she's got tuberculosis in the lungs as well
3: was helpful. And it did save her life. And
4: she eventually came through. She's almost completing her treatment now, and she's put on over 10 kgs of weight, and she's doing really well.
0: But as you were saying, I mean, this is a very kind of narrow application of AI, isn't it? It's uh, very good at focusing on one particular domain. But we still need the doctor to put this information into a kind of more general context, is that right?
3: Yes, that's true. And there there is no suggestion that doctors are going to be superfluous anytime soon, if only for the reason that patients are human and they need to talk to other humans when they're feeling sick and uh, I can't uh, foresee a time when I was genuinely ill or somebody I love like my children or whatever and we walked in and were just given a diagnosis flashed up on a screen it just doesn't give you the same comfort even if it's true but in terms of outcomes you have to look at the baseline so for millions or billions of people they, their health isn't good and their access to health care isn't good enough. Half of the people in the world don't have access to basic health services, and for them this kind of um, an automated option, which is far cheaper, easier to scale, um, and you know, easy to use, could it could significantly improve outcomes in marginalized places that don't have this access.
0: So we've heard a lot of the potential pitfalls of uh, using biased data sets and AI in many contexts, uh, but... As this episode has shown, AI can also be a force for incredible kind of benefits um, on a net basis. Do you think uh, humanity benefits from the deployment of AI?
3: That's the big question. (laughs) Well, I mean, as a techno optimist, generally, um, I feel that if we know that this exists and we know that it can do good, you can't roll it back. it's very hard to kind of put it in a box and lock it up so yes I believe on net it will do good if we allow it to do good and if if we can create that effect Um, but that's why we talk about bias and that's why we talk about all the pitfalls because you know if we don't put those guardrails in around it then it's never going to have the positive impact that it can uh, fulfill its potential
0: You've been listening to Tectonic from the Financial Times in London with me, John Thornhill. Alice Fordham is our senior producer. Josh G.D., our assistant producer. Aluwa Kemi, Alu, Alu Dasui, and Liam Nolan are our development producers. Sound design and mixing were by Sean McGarrity. Cheryl Bramley is the executive producer for this series. And you heard music from the Ian Campbell Folk Group. And original scoring was composed by Metaphor Music. Join us next week when we'll be looking at AI in finance and whether the trading bots are really as clever as they look.